Welcome to Test All Things. Test All Things is an outreach of Tower to Truth Ministries, and I'm your host, Brian Sankey. You can find us on the web at tower2truth.net. Test All Things is a Bible discernment, evangelistic program, dedicated to creating an awareness of, and biblical answers to, false religious teachings opposing Christianity today. Okay, we all heard it. When you ask someone, why don't you believe the Bible, one of the most common objections is, the Bible is full of, and can you say it with me, contradictions. Today's show is about, you guessed it, contradictions in the Bible. The Bible claims to be the inspired Word of God, not just God's thoughts, but His actual Word on issues such as salvation, atonement, creation, sin, resurrection, forgiveness, and many other issues. If the Bible is inspired by God, should we expect contradictions? No. God is not the author of confusion. He's not a man that he should change his mind or lie. Then why do we, or do we, find contradictions in the Bible? Well, the answer is there are no contradictions in the Bible, but there are alleged contradictions or seeming contradictions. Listen, if you're reading the Bible to find contradictions, you'll come, come away with lots of things that, maybe to a superficial reader, sure seem to be at odds with one another. But to someone who reads the Bible carefully, understanding the context involved, the culture, the author's intent for writing, and the receiving audience, there are no contradictions. One of the things that make the Bible so incredible is that it's a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by many authors from all walks of life, kings, military leaders, fishermen, a tax collector, a physician, and it all agrees on all issues, many of them controversial. You know, in today's world, you could hardly find ten people who live around the corner from you who have the same income level and social status and race to agree on even one controversial issue, but the Bible authors are completely unified on all issues presented. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we live in a world opposed to the Bible. Attacks on it come at all angles. We need to be able to answer those who oppose our faith in love. Now, let me say that Christians have been on the defense for too long, so it's time to go on the offense. So, the next time you're at dinner with your fellow company employees or at your in-law's house and the issue of the Bible comes up and someone says, I don't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions, what should you do? Well, you tell them the Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by many different authors, right? No. Say this. Will you please name a contradiction? Then you hand them your little New Testament that you carry around in your coat pocket or in your pocketbook. Chances are good that person cannot name one contradiction. Then you look good and they look really dumb and all you did was ask a question. Now, however... There are people, more the minority, who can name some seeming contradictions in the Bible. They read maybe an atheist book or two or some anti-Christian websites and may remember a contradiction they learned about. And this is where today's study comes in. I want to talk about some of the seeming contradictions in the New Testament, today particularly in the Gospels. And we're going to cover three today. The first seeming contradiction is... How many angels were at the empty tomb? How many angels at the empty tomb? I want to read to you Matthew 28, 
Starting in verse 1, it says, Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was an earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So, how many angels were at the empty tomb? Well, Matthew says there was one angel at the tomb. Contrast John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Okay, now Matthew says there was one angel, but John says there were two angels at the tomb. Is this a contradiction? No. Why? Notice in Matthew that he records that one angel came down from heaven, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. Notice the angel's position was outside the tomb. Did the women go in the tomb at this point? No. They ran off and told the disciples what happened. John, he records for us what happened after Peter and John were informed by the women, and they also ran to the tomb themselves to see if it was true, and they went inside and found it empty. It was after all this that Mary bent down to look into the tomb and saw two angels, one sitting at the head of where Jesus' body previously lay, and the other sitting at the feet. So, let's count how many angels, angels were at the tomb. How many of you say one? How many say two? How about three? Three is the answer. One angel that sat on the stone after he rolled it away, and two that sat inside the tomb. Is this a contradiction? No. It's a harmony of the account, exactly what you would expect to hear if you interviewed different people regarding a matter. Listen, if everyone gave the same exact story in the same exact way, with the same exact details, you might think that there's something fishy going on. Why? Because different people emphasize different aspects of the same story. The Gospels are not fabrications or collusions, but honest accounts of Jesus' life from different perspectives. So when we compare Matthew and John, we find that there were three angels at the tomb of Jesus. Matthew only writes about one of them. John writes about the other two. How about the second seeming contradiction? And this is a short one. What was Jesus' occupation? What was his occupation? Well, Mark chapter 6 says this, starting in verse 1, When he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this? which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So what was Jesus' occupation according to Mark? Well, a carpenter, right. How about Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 54, says this, 
When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Matthew doesn't say Jesus was a carpenter, but the carpenter's son. Is this a contradiction? Who was the carpenter anyway, Jesus or his father? There's a third option, and that is both of them were. Jesus and Joseph were both carpenters. This is easy. Both were carpenters by trade, just like many people today, myself included, work with their dad and became the same occupation later in life. This is not a contradiction at all. Both were carpenters. The third seeming contradiction that we will talk about today. What time was Jesus crucified? Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 22, says, And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. What time was it when they crucified Jesus? Mark says it was the third hour. How about John 19? Contrast John 19, starting in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. You might say, Well, Fran, I think they got a real contradiction here. How can you reconcile this? First thing to note here, Jewish time was counted by a different starting point than Roman time. This is very important. What hour did the Jews count as the first hour of the day? The answer is 6 o'clock in the morning. Let's put this into Mark's account. When we do this, Mark would read that at 9 a.m. they crucified Jesus, again because Mark said it was the third hour, so this would be 9 a.m. Let's put this into John's account, which says it was the sixth hour. It would translate into being 12 noon that they led Jesus away to be crucified. Does this work? No. We have Mark saying Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning, and John saying it was 12 noon when they led him away to the cross. Hmm, but wait. What if you use Roman time for John's account, not Jewish time? Roman time started when our day officially starts at 12 a.m. or midnight. John says it was the sixth hour that Jesus was led away to be crucified, which would compute to 6 o'clock in the morning. Then you need to add time to this, remembering to factor in Jesus' long walk, carrying his cross, being exhausted already, getting Simon to help him carry the cross, and the time to get all the other logistics in place. When we do this, 
we shouldn't have a problem with it being three hours later at 9 a.m. that Jesus was finally nailed to the cross, exactly the time Mark says it happened in his gospel. But why would Mark use Jewish time and not John? John was a Jew too, right? Yes. Well, consider that most scholars feel as though John's gospel was the last of the four gospels written, maybe as late as 90 to 100 A.D. John would have been an old man by then and would have spent considerable time in the city of Ephesus, where tradition says he was the leader of the Ephesian church. Ephesus was a Roman city that counted the day in Roman time. It isn't hard to believe at all that John would have written the chronology of Jesus' crucifixion in the time that he was now used to, Roman time, and the time that Greek believers around him would easily understand. Again, there is no contradiction. So far, the Bible proves right again. Today, I'll continue with the topic of contradictions in the Bible. We looked at three seeming contradictions in the Gospels, and of course all three were reconciled. We looked at how many angels were at the empty tomb, what was Jesus' occupation, and what time was Jesus crucified. Today we'll continue with a few more alleged contradictions in the New Testament. The Bible tells us to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. And I assume that if you're a Christian, your hope is in the person of Jesus Christ who is revealed to us in his word, the Bible. To discredit the Bible with having contradictions is the goal of the evil one, and he uses people such as atheists or skeptics or Muslims and anyone else he can to persuade us that the Bible is in error. But we know that the Bible is from God, and we can trust that it has no contradictions. So, let's look at our first seeming contradiction today, and it's a popular one. It is, how many times did the rooster crow? Now, you remember the story. Jesus announced right before he was arrested that all the apostles would fall away that night because of him. Peter, being the outspoken one that he was, announced that even if all the others fall away, I will not. A very touching and sentimental statement, no doubt, but Jesus, knowing the future, said that Peter would in fact fall away on account of him that very night. Now, I'll read the statements we're examining from all four gospel accounts. This one is from Matthew 26. Jesus said to him, As surely I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Luke 22, then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. John 13, Jesus answered him, most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. However, Mark's account says something different. He writes in Mark 14, verse 30, as surely I say to you, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Skeptics love this one. They say this is a clear contradiction. Mark clearly contradicts the other three writers by saying that Peter will deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows twice, not once. Can this be reconciled? Yes. I said on the last program that to fully understand the Bible, it helps to have a background into the audience and culture the author is writing from and to. In this case, it was the Jewish culture. Now, let me illustrate. Let's say I'm going to a hockey game with my wife and our friend's son. 
Now, my wife has never been to a hockey game, nor does she know anything about how the game is played. My friend's son, however, loves hockey and goes to the game frequently. My friend's son asked me after we arrive, Do you mind if I sit with my friends from school? They're sitting across the ice and they have an empty seat. Well, I say, okay, just meet us where we came in right after the buzzer sounds. Now, as the first period ends with a loud buzzer, my wife says, let's go meet the boy where we came in. I say, no, I didn't mean that buzzer. I meant the last buzzer, the third buzzer. You see, since my wife has limited information about hockey and slap shots and cherry picking, and when buzzers sound at the game, she assumes we're meeting up with the boy after the first buzzer sounded. But the boy, being a veteran hockey fan, knew that I meant to meet us after the final buzzer that ends the game, the third buzzer. Now, why this illustration? Because the Jews living in Israel were used to an, an event called the cock crowing. The cock crowing was an event they experienced every day. It was the alarm clock that told them it's time to get up. Dawn is almost here. It occurred just before sunrise. It would announce that it's time to rise and get ready to work. When Jesus said that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crows, Jesus was referring to the cock crowing, the event they all knew well before dawn. Now, this was probably not the only time the cock crowed during the night. The cock could crow several times nightly, but it was the final crowing, the one announcing the new day that Jesus was speaking of. Mark differs because he is actually adding detail to the story that the other writers omitted when he writes again, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Mark is not contradicting the others, but being more descriptive, adding that the rooster will actually crow twice, once sometime during the night, which was usually disregarded by people sleeping, and again, at the cock crowing. It would be at the second crowing of the rooster, the cock crowing before dawn, that Peter would fulfill Jesus' prophecy regarding himself. So, the idea that Matthew, Luke, and John are conveying is that Peter would deny Jesus three times before the cock crowing event near dawn. Mark is adding information by giving us the actual number of times the cock would crow. Now, can I back this up at all? I can. Listen to what Jesus said about another unrelated event in Mark chapter 13, verse 35. He said, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. Now listen to the ordering here. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Did you see the pattern? Jesus wasn't speaking here about the actual cock crowing per se, but about the cock crowing time occurring just before morning. Okay, how about our second seeming contradiction? Who rose from the dead first? And I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20, which says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. 
And the topic of the resurrection is very important to Christianity and is the topic of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The problem is this. Some say that Jesus being called the first fruits of those who have died and were made alive is a contradiction. Why? Because others were raised before him. Paul, the writer, should have known that Jesus was not the first person to rise from the dead. Elijah and Elisha both raised someone back to life in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself raised a few people, including Lazarus. So is this a blatant oversight on Paul? No. Again, Jewish culture holds the answer. In fact, there are two answers I have heard that respond to this. One is that Jesus is called the first fruits because he was the only one to rise from the dead never to die again, and this fact is true. But I don't think that's the right answer. Paul is referring to the Feast of Firstfruits, which occurred every year in Israel after Passover. The priests would take a sheaf of the first gathering of the harvest that year and offer it before the Lord. This would indicate that the firstfruits of the offering would be a guarantee of the harvest to come. The firstfruits was a pledge of a good harvest to come. So in that respect... Fitting this idea into 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying that Jesus being the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep is a pledge that the rest of the harvest, that's you and I, would follow and be raised also. God will one day gather the rest of us in the final resurrection and raise us up because Jesus' resurrection was a pledge or guarantee of our future resurrection. How about our third and final seeming contradiction today. It is, did Jesus speak to the centurion or not? In Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, it says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Contrast Luke's account. This will be in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die, so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far, far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Do you see the alleged contradiction? Matthew writes that the centurion himself came to Jesus and pled with him. Luke writes that the centurion didn't personally come himself, but sent delegates to Jesus in his place. How can this be reconciled? Fairly easily. The Bible sometimes gives credit for an act to the person in authority, even though the person in authority was not the actual person acting. For example, 
John wrote, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, but meant that Pilate ordered the scourging to be done, not that Pilate did it himself. We see also in John 4 that Jesus baptized more disciples than John. And then John adds that Jesus didn't actually baptize anyone. His disciples really did. So Luke's account would be the more specific account here that the centurion sends servants to Jesus acting on his behalf and sending representatives on someone's behalf in the Bible is sometimes credited as though the person came himself. If you're interested in a CD copy of this teaching, you can contact me by email or phone. My email is help at tower2truth.net. My phone number is 610-513-5525. That's 610-513-5525 for more info on cults. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.